This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 63. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 63 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, and Focal Monitors. Welcome, my friends. Have my nice cup of coffee here. You can't smell it, mm, but I can. Mm. Got to thank my friends over at the License Lab, uh, Daniel in uh, Milwaukee, and uh, his crew over there sent me... Uh, Love Supreme, nice coffee beans, yes, from uh, from a coffee shop there, a roastery there, and uh, complete with a mug, some uh, Atomic Fireball candies, and, uh, and a very nice note. So, uh, Daniel, License Lab, thanks everybody, I appreciate it. Yeah, drinking that coffee now, it's very good, very good. Mm. Damn fine cup of coffee. Moving on, we have a great show today. I have Mr. Joey Sturgis on, who is a producer and engineer mixer known for his work in the metalcore scene and uh i tell you this guy he's he's quite young and i think he's just he's a part of uh he's an indication to me a part of the new generation of uh audio folks coming up just really really industrious uh he's got a plug-in company he's got an audio education company and uh yeah he's just he's everywhere he's doing a lot of stuff and uh really diversifying to the maximum degree he can, and he's quite successful at it, I got to say. He's very interesting to talk to. I very much enjoyed it, and I think you will enjoy it too. Uh, A lot of business talk, really good conversations with Joey Sturgis coming up. So I have been talking about an acoustic discussion that we were going to have, and uh, we're going to have that discussion right now. So I talked about in the new year, just after the new year here in 2016, I talked about changes and, you know, just uh, mixing things up a bit. So one of the changes that I've been really desiring to make is uh, kind of a uh, a, make, a makeover, uh, not only just aesthetically, but acoustically in my mix room, mastering room here at home. So I've been doing a lot of thinking and I don't know if you're like me, you have a vision of something that you want to do, an idea of what you want to do. And, and some of us, and I'm one of those, uh, I like to think it through for a while, envision it, write, maybe make notes about it, maybe, you know, jot down ideas and then act on those ideas at some point. And hopefully, you know, that time between thinking of the idea and actually acting on it is shorter rather than longer. I've been doing a little painting here and there. That's one thing. And that, of course, mixes things up. But I really want to just sharpen my room up from, like I said, an acoustic standpoint and an aesthetic standpoint. So I found myself in a conversation uh, over email with James Lindenschmidt from Real Traps, from the acoustic products company Real Traps. You might have seen their, their products about basically kind of going back and forth, uh, talking about the possibility of him coming on the show and kind of giving us a little primer on uh, acoustics for small rooms. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in working on my room. And so long story short, we came up with the idea that we would use my room as a test case to discuss because it's something I want to do. I want to work on my room. And it it gives uh, you all kind of like a, a glimpse into his process of helping people out and consulting with them. So 
he's going to come up here soon on a phone conversation. Now, just to preempt that conversation, I sent him a video of my room, just me kind of walking around the room explaining angles and uh, measurements and, you know, kind of details of the room. And I'll share that with you on uh, YouTube. We'll kind of put this together in kind of a compilation. Uh, this is going to be kind of a, a multi-part series where we're going to have an initial conversation today where we talk to James and get his reaction to my video. And we'll see what he has to say. And we're going to do, I guess we're, he's going to consult with me here and we're going to treat the room in some capacity and try to improve uh, the acoustics of it. So that is coming up right now. So let's just jump into that. Let's do a Skype call. I'm going to pause. I'm going to set up the mic and we're going to, we're going to do a Skype call with James Lindenschmidt of Real Traps. So let's do that. You've seen the video I sent you, mm -hmm. and I don't know. I'm curious, what like, how do we start? What's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I always start with sort of how the room is set up, okay? Because mm -hmm. we want to make sure that obviously, a the room works ergonomically and for your workflow, you know, that's really important too. Also, how is the room working in terms of its setup acoustically, right? And mm -hmm. and with that, I usually start with where's the listening position, okay? Where mm -hmm. where are you sitting when you're listening? Because what happens a lot is Every single point in the room is going to have its own sort of unique frequency response. So we want to make sure that where you're listening, where you're sitting when you're listening, you're not sitting like in the middle of a null point for something or, you know, or something like that. You know, you, and, and that usually happens if you're like right in the center of the room and things like that. You know, so we want to make sure that just sort of understand what's happening with your setup. Because a lot of times people are already set up and moving things around isn't really an option. So we just sort of have to go with how things are and treat it based on that. Other times, if people are a little more open to maybe tweaking the setup a little bit, if it's worth doing for, you know, some specific gains we're after in your response, you know, that's another thing too. And one of the things from the video that you sent, um, I don't know if that's something that people will be able to see, you know, people that are listening. I've explained to the audience that this is the first part of a conversation and it'll be part of a kind of a series of conversations where we, you know, put it all together. And I think I might just put it together in a, uh, in a final YouTube video. Yeah, that works. So one thing that it, it was hard for me to, to sort of discern from the video, you, you have kind of an, an unusual setup in that you're sort of facing into the, the, the kind of almost a larger part of the room. You've got a lot of space in front of you um, where people are, are sort of recording, if I remember correctly. And um, um, and you're sort of towards the back of the room, sort of facing into the room. Is that, would you? Um, actually, like as I look forward, mm -hmm. the ceiling is at its lowest point in front of me. Got it, okay. Behind me, it's at its highest point. Okay, yeah. good. That that ceiling being angled and you orienting yourself the way you have along the angle is good. And the reason is that that's gonna tend to aim the reflections off the ceiling over your head behind you, right? So you're not gonna have mm. those early ceiling reflections bouncing down right into your ears just because of the angle. I mean, unless it's a really slight angle. From the video, it looked like it was pretty, like a couple of feet over the... 10 or 15 feet length of the room, whatever it is? I would say it's a foot and a half to two feet. Okay. Yeah, so so from what I could see, that the, that's enough of an angle that you can really benefit from that. Um, you know, first of all, it avoids parallel surfaces. Yeah, that's sort of one of the commonly understood rules for building a studio is no parallel walls. You don't want any parallel surfaces. And there, there's some truth in that for sure, because parallel surfaces can cause flutter echo. 
mm-hmm. which is a it's a really kind of peculiar sound. It's mostly easy to hear like in a bare room with sheetrock that's just gone up in parallel. And that's just sound bouncing back and forth between two parallel surfaces. And like if you go in and clap your hands in a room like that, it almost sounds like this very almost metallic boinging sound. That's flutter echo. And that That's that, a good explanation of it, that metallic yeah. boingy sound. Right. And and you know, people like like in a stairwell or something like that, if you clap your hands, you can totally hear it sometimes. That's flutter echo. And that's really the main thing that parallel walls can cause. If any one of the parallel walls in that staircase or wherever you are was not parallel and you know off center a little bit, then that flutter echo would go away. So, you know, flutter echo is one thing we have to deal with. The fact that yours is angled the way it is, you know, like I said, that's going to aim those reflections coming off the ceiling instead of right back down to your ears. It's going to aim them over your head towards the rear of the room. And that, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. That means that um, getting some treatments up there on the ceiling isn't as hugely critical for you as it is for somebody with a flat ceiling. I still think you can benefit a lot from it, but it's not a game changer in the same way that it would be if you had a flat ceiling. But what it does do, since now when you're listening, we're aiming more sound towards the rear wall behind you, then that makes the treatment of that rear wall even more important than normal. Yeah. So, you know, that's definitely something that we're going to want to pay attention to. And just simply because of sort of the layout of your room, it's not a simple rectangle, as I recall. You've got the sloped ceiling, and then isn't it wider in the back of the room than it is in the front? Do I remember that right, or is it about the same? The angles are super, super funky. I guess to some degree plays in my favor. Yeah. I I would say it, it does feel a little wider, in the back slightly. Now, in general, there's two strategies that we focus on that are the most important things. First one is bass trapping to level out your bass response. And then that second strategy is going to be early reflection management. Because your room is really sort of unusual, and it's not a simple rectangle, you've got the sloped ceiling, one of the things that I'm interested in is what's the bass doing in your room, okay? Where is it building up? Where are the nulls? Things like that. And there's actually a, um, a listening test that I would suggest that you do. But basically, what, what we want to do is we want to generate some pink noise that's playing basically all the bass frequencies at once, from 400 hertz on down. We actually have an MP3 of that on our website on realtraps.com. You can just download that real quick if you want. Or uh, if you have a way to generate pink noise and filter it, you can do that too. You want to play that through your system. And while it's playing, what I would ask you to do is to walk around your room and stick your head into various corners, nooks and crannies, and listen for places where the bass gets loud. And you'll definitely hear it. There, you know, it, As soon as you go into a corner, the bass, you know, you, you'll hear certain frequencies getting a lot louder. Um, if you have an SPL meter, you, know, you can use mm-hmm. that too and get a little more quantitative data as far as see how loud things are. But, but really what we're after with that test is where are the bass hotspots in your room? Okay, Mm -hmm. because any spot with a bass buildup like that is a good place to put a bass trap if you're able to, just because there's more bass in that location in the room to be absorbed. So they'll be a little bit more effective if you can get the bass traps in those spots. So that's one thing that we'll want to do in the you know as we sort of formulate the strategy as far as where we're going to put the treatments and things like that. Okay. Um, If I had to guess where the hot spots are going to be, based on the shape of your room, it's going to be the rear wall behind you is probably going to be very strong, just because that's where sound is getting aimed. Particularly up in the ceiling corner um, on that back wall, where there's the sharp angle, it's a sharper than 90 degree angle. That that corner is probably going to have a big buildup up there. So getting some bass trapping mounted up there might make, make sense for you. That's one possibility. But, you know, with, with bass trapping in general, really the, the, the most important thing is to just have enough traps in the room. 
the exact placement of each trap down to the inch isn't really that important compared to just having the, you know enough traps in there to do the job. You know, so we've got some flexibility with placement with base traps and things like that. So you know, we can sort of paint in broad strokes and think about base traps and things like that, and then sort of figure out the exact location of where they're all going to go. You know, later maybe after you do that listening test. Okay. Um, the second thing is going to be the whole early reflection um, strategy. And okay. that's a little bit different because placement of the traps is extremely important for that. They just simply, they have to be in the right place or they're not going to be able to do their job. Okay. So have, have you run across, it, it's, it's a lot more well-known now than it used to be five or 10 years ago, the concept of a reflection-free zone at the listening position. Should we talk about what that means? Maybe? Sure. Let's talk about that. Basically, what we want to do is we want to get rid of early reflections in your monitoring environment. Okay. Okay. So, so let's imagine, like, like imagine you have no treatment in your room right now and you're listening to music on your speakers. Okay. The first sounds that you hear is the sound leaving the speakers, traveling in a straight line, going into your ears and you hear that right away. Right. Um, then a few milliseconds later, you're going to start to hear those early reflections bouncing off the sidewalls. For most people, I would say the ceiling, although it's possible you're not hearing the ceiling reflections because they're going over your head, but wherever the early reflections are, you're going to hear basically the same sound coming from a different direction. And in small rooms like most of us are working in, these are going to certainly be within about 25 milliseconds or so, those early reflections. You know, sound travels a little bit less than a foot per millisecond. What happens is when we're hearing basically the same sound coming from three to five locations, it sort of confuses our brain's ability to localize where the sound comes from. Okay, Because mm -hmm. uh, the, the, those echoes that we hear are close enough in time that we don't perceive it as an echo. You know, just like when you're putting a short delay on something when you're mixing, if it's under 25 seconds, you don't hear the echo. It just sort of you know, gives you some comb filtering and you hear other effects of it, but you don't perceive it as a, as a distinct echo up until you're around 25, 30, 40 milliseconds or up. That's where you can start to hear the echoes. But that really sort of messes with our ability to pick things out in the stereo image. The sound stage loses coherence because our brain's getting confused psychoacoustically because we're hearing all these things. So with the reflection-free zone, the idea is to find those reflection points, those points where the sound's bouncing off the sidewalls or the ceiling or, or wherever else, and put some absorption there, okay? And okay. Just, just totally absorb those sounds on its way to your ears at, at the reflection points. And by getting rid of those reflections, all you're left with is the direct sound of the speakers. And then maybe 30, 40 milliseconds later, you'll start to hear some secondary reflections, of the, you know, a little bit of reverb and things like that bouncing around the room. But that's far enough back and it's low enough in volume that, you know, it doesn't affect things in the same way as those really early reflections do. Once you're in a reflection-free zone listening, in, in some ways that, that's the most kind of interesting change, I think, for, an, for a recording engineer because that's where things like panning, reverb and delay tails, really subtle sort of mid-range EQ adjustments when you're trying to get instruments to play well together in a mix, that's where you can really hear a lot more accurately with a reflection-free zone. In some ways, it gives you the, it takes a step towards like the really detailed stereo image that you get with a great set of headphones, but you're hearing that with your speakers, so you have all the benefits of actually using speakers rather than headphones. So it's, mm -hmm. it's almost like a best of both worlds kind of thing. So those two strategies, really, the, the base trapping and the early reflection management, reflection-free zone creation, that's really sort of probably 80 to 100% of what we do in just about every room. Those two steps alone go a long, long way. When is it important in a small room situation to employ diffusion? That's a great question. Our take on diffusion is that diffusion is sort of icing on the cake in a great room. 
it's not necessary for good sound. It's, it's probably not the most cost-effective step in the world. These other steps that we've been talking about with absorbing early reflections and bass trapping are going to make a way bigger improvement in your sound than diffusion will. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but where diffusion is useful is taking a really good room that has all those basics covered and then taking it next level and making it into a really great room. The thing that diffusion does very well is it balances out the sound of the room without making things too dead. And it really does a good job of evening out the reverb time of the room across the frequency spectrum, okay? Mm -hmm. So in other words, all the tones in the bass and the treble are all going to have a similar reverb time when you've got a good diffusion implementation. And really, that's true also with absorption and bass trapping. They all contribute to that. But with diffusion, if you've got good use of diffusion, then that's going to just level everything out, make it nice and consistent without making it a really, really short reverb time, meaning a really dead room. You're still mm -hmm. going to have some life in the room. That's sort of our take on diffusion. And, you know, unfortunately, also diffusers are our most expensive panels because they're labor intensive to build and there's a lot of parts to them. You know, so don't get me wrong. I love to sell diffusers. But um, in most cases, that's sort of toward the end of the strategy. You can get a lot more immediate results and certainly a lot more cost-effective results from you know following the bass trapping and the early reflection absorption idea. And you know, one other note about diffusion, there, there are some people who like to hear diffusion at reflection points instead of absorption. That's not the case for me. I, I think absorption wins that. And every t all the testing we've done, both in terms of measuring the final results in terms of frequency response and also listening, absorption has won that battle every single time without exception. And I think the main reason for that is absorption works pretty much across the frequency spectrum. Even if you're using like something like our Microtrap, a one-inch thick high-frequency absorber, you're still getting absorption all the way down to about 200, 250 hertz. And you know, from there mm -hmm. on up, it absorbs pretty much everything that hits it. Whereas diffusion generally is more of a, a, a narrower bandwidth of effect. Like a diffuser, our diffusers, they diffuse up to about 4 or 5K or so, all the way down to where they start to transition into bass trapping. And that's going to be between 4 and 800 hertz, depending on which model diffuser you're talking about. You know, the, those super high frequencies don't quite get diffused as well. The low frequencies also don't get absorbed. So, so diffusion is a narrower bandwidth thing. You know, for, for that reason, and I think just because with early reflections, you just want to get rid of that energy. Um, you don't, you don't want to diffuse it. And, and we should talk a little about, too, with diffusion. Diffusion is a specific thing. It's not necessarily breaking up sound waves, okay? Like a lot of people say, oh, put a bookshelf up. That'll give you some diffusion. Certainly, a bookshelf is better than a flat reflective wall, but it's not going to give you diffusion. Diffusion is, is like a diffuser that's built. It's very precise. There's a series of wells in a diffuser, or sometimes you'll see a, a two-dimensional diffuser that looks like a skyline-type diffuser. Mm -hmm. um, that just means that it diffuses sound both left, right, and up, down, whereas the, the QRD diffusers that have the different wells just pretty much diffuse left to right. That's, those are the type that we sell. Those wells are very specifically calculated depths, and it's not just a random number. They're, they're, they have to be a certain depth, and if you don't build them accurately, it's not going to give you diffusion. And diffusion is where the sound is scattered evenly in all directions, okay? Mm -hmm. So that, that's sort of what diffusion is. And, you know, to achieve that, you know, it requires very, you, know, you have to calculate them precisely. There's calculators online you can find, you know, if you're, if you're into building that sort of thing yourself. Uh, but you better be a good carpenter because you have to, you have to make very precise cuts and, and everything's got to be, you know, just so or it's not going to work. Oh, shit, there's math involved. Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> I'm the same way, so, yeah. That's the last thing I want. Right. <laughs> 
So in my case, yeah. with regards to early reflections, mm -hmm. to my right, basically it's the remnants of a closet. So the closet okay. doors have been removed. Mm -hmm. Up top is some storage uh, through some cabinets that follow that sloping upward uh, of the ceiling. And then in to, to the back corner, on the still on the right-hand side, not on the, well, here, still on the right-hand side, you know, there's these bookshelves. Okay. And then, and you know, there's the... Uh, Remnants of the closet. Gotcha. And then it's then at some point here we hit the we hit the back wall. Gotcha. On my left, just to recap, is a window. Right. And there's just a curtain there. Right. And so I have to say, I I realize that the curtain is not the most ideal solution, but you know sometimes when I'm working, actually many times when I'm working during the day, um, when the kids are at school, I just love opening up the windows and getting that sunlight in here. Totally. And then when I'm really like nose to the grindstone, I shut the curtains and really right. try to get stuff done. And I, I feel that maybe it's not making as big of an impact as it could, but I'm also kind of a distance away from the right. left and the right. Right. Yeah. And certainly the curtains absorbing some highs. I would, I, I that's, you know, pretty much any cloth is going to absorb high frequencies. Mm -hmm. um, the main question with things like curtains is how low of a frequency will it absorb to? And that's yeah. and, and that's going to depend on how thick the curtain is, whether it's pleated. You know what I mean? Where where you know where it's it's you know if it's all stretched out flat, it won't absorb as much as if it's sort of gathered and pleated, and you know like like a big theater curtain or something like that would be. You know, so certainly you know, and and plus you've got glass behind there, so the glass, you know, that that's obviously a highly reflective surface. So I'm sure it's taking the edge off of that in terms of the high frequencies. And it might even be absorbing down into the mid-range if it's a good thick curtain or something like that. But below that, it's probably not, you know, it's probably more or less acoustically transparent. You might still get a tiny bit of absorption, you know, and yeah. it'll taper off like, you know, like, like a lot of things do. But yeah, and that's definitely tricky in your situation because, you know, you've got the window on one side and the bookshelf on the other and hanging a trap there is going to be tricky. And like I said, with this strategy of early reflections, the traps pretty much have to be in the right place, so they're just not going to be able to do their job. Um, right. So, so one solution that works in this situation, and again, this is totally dependent on sort of how your workflow is, would mm -hmm. be to, would be to use a trap on a stand in those in those places, like even something like our thin micro trap that's an inch thick absorber, a two foot by four foot panel on a stand. That way, when you're doing critical listening or mixing or mastering or something like that, you can put them in place. And then if you're, uh, if, if you're tracking, you know, or the room's crowded or you need to rearrange the room, you can easily move them out of the way. Um, in fact, you can even use them while you're tracking. A lot of times, you know, people that start off with this, like, like with our starter kit or something like that, you know, somebody that's getting started with treatment, I, I always like to recommend that they have a, at least a couple of traps on stands because they can multitask that way, you know? So, you know, like we're talking about when you're mixing, they're at your reflection points and that's where they're normally parked. But if mm -hmm. you if you have to do vocal overdubs or something like that, you can arrange them and put them sort of in a V shape right behind the microphone, have the vocalist sing into that, and then that'll sort of get rid of the room tone in the recording and clean things up that way. It gives you some nice versatility. But again, the problem then though is, you know, in a small room, if floor space is already tight, it just may not be an option for you. And that's sort of what you have to weigh on that level. Well, I, you know, I could tell you that after closer evaluation of where I'm sitting, I realize that if I angle my speakers so they are parallel with the back wall, mm -hmm. then they're kind of a little off of the angle of the ceiling. Got it. If okay. I angle at the ceiling, then they're off the wall. Right. And I don't know what's what's the better solution. Right. Um, as I'm sitting here, I realize, oh, the right speaker is closer to the back wall than the left speaker. Okay. 
and that's not something that seems right in my symmetrical right. that, mind. Yeah, there, there's there's a few things happening with that. You know, one is symmetry is important from the listening position forward if you can manage it. Now, some rooms just aren't symmetrical and you're not going to be able to set up so that you get that acoustic symmetry. So in that situation, a lot of times with the treatment strategies, we'll try to restore some acoustic symmetry. You know, for instance, one of the problems when you've got speakers at different distance from the front wall, and, and about how far would you say your speakers are from the front wall on it approximately, just ballpark? Uh, I would say probably three feet on the left and two and a half feet on the right. Okay. Yeah, that's... And, and, I, and I almost feel like you mentioned not being in the middle of the room, and I looked up and I thought, mm. am I in the middle of the room? It's possible you are. And, I, th and I, th I, th I think I could almost go back a little further. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's something that that listening test we talked about earlier with the, the filtered pink noise, um, mm -hmm. that's definitely something um, um, I, that, that'll be really, really useful for you. Just because, I mean, you know, if it's a simple rectangular room, you know, at this point, I pretty much know what those are going to do. I've treated thousands of rooms like that. But, you know, every time you have an unusual room, it's a little tougher to predict what's going to be happening. Regarding the front wall issue, um, there's a thing, another thing called boundary interference that concerns us in this situation. The way that works is, um, and you know, this is sort of a layman's explanation, um, when sound leaves the speaker, um, the bass is more or less omnidirectional, it, you know, like a pebble in a pond. It goes out equally in all directions. And that's true, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you've got, you know, acoustic suspension speakers or bass reflex speakers or however the cabinets are designed or if there's a port on the back or the front, it doesn't really matter. The, when bass leaves that speaker, it's going to be pretty omnidirectional relative to the high frequencies, which are mm -hmm. much more directional, more of a beaming sort of situation. If you can imagine the bass wave leaving that speaker and going back towards the front wall, reflecting off the front wall and coming back to where the speaker is, okay? that reflected bass wave is gonna interfere with the new bass wave that's just now leaving the speaker in that moment. So, so that, that's boundary interference. And what usually happens is it'll create a peak and, a, and or a null at a frequency that's related to that distance. So two and a half feet on one side for you, three feet on the other approximately. If you were to, to measure the response of each individual speaker and calculate the wavelength of that three and a half or three feet or two and a half feet, my guess is you'd see some sort of peak or a null related to that. So what we can do to sort of eliminate that, and, and actually one more note about your specific room, the fact that it's a different distance for your left and right speaker means that those frequencies are going to be different as well, which is going to contribute more to the lack of symmetry that you hear, okay? Mm. Because you're getting one response from the right speaker and a different response from the left speaker on the low end. So, so what we can do to sort of minimize that and try to restore a little bit of acoustic symmetry is to get, again, get bass traps in that path, you know, that, that the sound would take, bounce off the front wall and come back to the speaker. If you can put a bass trap in that path, that'll help to minimize the interference that happens and, uh, and, and sort of flatten things out some more there. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's another strategy, getting, you know, on, on that front wall behind the speakers, the wall that you're facing when you're right now, when you're, when you're mixing. Uh, yeah. I, I would usually refer that to the front wall. I mean, you can refer to it either way, but just so we're being clear what we mean by that. Um, the wall that you're facing for me, I, I call that the front wall um, and that's behind the speakers. So yeah, so, so if you can get some bass traps directly behind the speakers, I think that would help you for sure. And uh, so, so that's another area that I would encourage you to pay close attention to in that listening test. Because hopefully there's a big bass build up there also, so we can sort of kill two birds with one stone with that trap, so those traps. So they're helping us with the boundary interference 
and they're also just they just happen to be in an area where there's a big base buildup, so it's going to help you even more anyway. Just generally, you know, mm-hmm. contributes to the overall base trapping strategy. Um, I think what I'll probably start with is to try to get more symmetry with the front wall mm-hmm. and try to get some I don't know try to get some things right just in the placement yeah. and then play play back the pink noise and then go around and listen rather than just sure. accept it as it is right now. I, I feel like I could make some changes preemptively before I even implement anything. Absolutely. And and if, if that's something that you're willing to do to, you know, to play, because, you know, you, you've been in the room for a while now, I assume. And so you kind of, mm-hmm. you, you kind of know the room taking a new look at things in terms of how things are set up with acoustics in mind, as well as with, uh, you know, convenience and ergonomics and things like that in mind, you know, that can be a very useful exercise for you. That's good to spend some time. And, and what I suggest is move your listening position and move your speakers around. Maybe you've already done a lot of this testing, but that can be very instructive. And, and pay particular attention to what the bass is doing. That's really where I think one of the places you can hear a big difference. You know, you're, you're after you know, consistency. If you are in the middle of the room, chances are there is a null point that you're sitting in when you're listening. So if you've got a range of frequencies that are just gone when you're mixing, that's probably related to that. And, you know, in a room your size, typically I think that's going to be somewhere between maybe, say, 60 or 70 hertz and maybe 150 hertz, somewhere in that range. If you've got a big, wide null, just a series of frequencies that you just can't hear very well, they're, you know, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 dB down relative to other frequencies, then I would say that, you know, that might be contributing to that, the fact that you're close to the center of the room. And I don't know if you remember, but I sent you the... um Printout, not the printout, but like kind of an image of, uh, you know, I use the SonarWorks room correction software, and what that that was an interesting. That first of all, for me, uh, I'm a firm believer in in that software because it kind of helped me like really dial the room in super quick. But I knew that there was some steps that I was kind of jumping, I was kind of uh, leapfrogging to a quick solution when I knew that there was some acoustic things I needed to do to get a better response out of the SonarWorks software. In other words, um, it showed me what was wrong with the room, but I didn't take the time to try to correct all of that. I just was like, oh, let's just use the software and correct it and see what we got. Right. But but the reality is, is you know, I'm looking at it and it's, it's not, I'm, this is kind of a guess because the, the markings on this are not 100% accurate, but, you know, there is definitely a, like a, almost six, little over a six dB bump uh, probably in 150 to 200 hertz in the room. Mm-hmm. And then there's a big, you know, almost 7.5 dB dip around, I think, 60 or 70. You kind of, you you had said that. Right. Yeah, that's really common. And and that, that, that probably is related to your placement in the room. A lot of times, um, we you, you, you'll hear online, and we talk about this a lot, you'll hear the 38% rule. Um, I don't know if you've run across that or not. That's actually kind of a misnomer. And the guy who actually started the idea, a studio designer who I, I really love his work, a guy named Wes Lachaud. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Wes. Yeah, he, he came up with that. And he kind of hates that everybody talks about this now because he was like, oh, I wasn't saying this is a rule for everything. But um, it is a good guideline, and I've used it a lot, and it's, it's very helpful. Um, the idea is instead of being at that halfway point in the room, the 50% point, try sitting at the 38% point of the length of the room. And that can be... From the, from the front wall. From the front wall is best, or if you can't do that, from the rear wall. 
would work too. Okay. Uh, just depending on how it is. And, you know, earlier in the conversation, I, I said, I always start with a listening position. And, you know, in a simple rectangular room, I'll, I'll use that 38% rule quite a bit. And I'll, that's where I'll set the, the engineer's chair goes here, 38% of the length of the room. And then set up the workstation in front of them, you know, in front of that listening position ergonomically, however your setup is. And, mm-hmm. then, and then arrange the speakers from there. And um, that sort of puts you in the best position to get good sound out of your room. And, uh, you know, so then you're, you're, you're already doing the best you can before you've even treated the room. And then once you treat the room, it'll be even better. This is cool. I think at this point, what I need to do is I, I have some homework. Right. Uh, I need to do some arranging and okay. I need to play some pink noise. and. Okay. Maybe kind of do a homework assignment and report back to you with my findings. Right. And then maybe that will kind of determine kind of uh, from a product standpoint what what's necessary to take it the rest of the way. Absolutely. And, and I've got a few ideas for that already, but I, I think we should hold off on that conversation until you've done your homework, as you put it. And, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, let, let's see how it is. Let's see, you know, because really what we're after at this point is how good can you get the room without treatment or, or with, you know, the treatments that you have now? And then we'll add to that with our treatments and just, you know, just make things even better. You know, there's, um, I think it's the home theater software that I, I'm spacing on the name that a lot of people seem to go by is uh, they use measurement mics and then they use it. It's mm-hmm. called, I think it's on hometheatershack.com or something. R- Room EQ Wizard is the... Room EQ Wizard, yeah, right. What a fabulous it, program that is. My goodness. It's a it's a free program. You can download it. It's cross platform. It runs on uh, Windows and Mac. It even runs on Linux if you're one of those people. Um, and yeah, that's that's what I like to use. It's a great program. Um, if you're a Mac guy, there's also a program called Fuzz Measure that's common. That's not a free program. If I remember right, it's about a hundred bucks or so. Um, but I think there's a demo that you can try for 30 days or something like that um, and do it. You know, and both of those programs do a good job. I'm more familiar personally with Room EQ Wizard, um, and I, I think that's got a lot of features on it. Even within the past, you know, two or three years, they've really taken it over the top. It works really well. And, you know, that is certainly useful, I think, for um, a, an engineer to do um, because it's useful to know where your problems are. You know, for instance, you know, let's say you seem to be having trouble getting your kick drum to sit with the bass guitar consistently, you know, through your mixes that you do. Um, and then you measure your room and you find out that say you've got, you know, maybe it's a, a 10 dB peak at 75 Hertz and a 15 dB null at 80 Hertz. Right. And that's, to- mm-hmm. that's totally common that, you know, things like that happen all the time. And so that's useful to know that that's what your room's doing to what you're hearing as you're adjusting the EQ. Do you see what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's certainly useful to know where your problems are. And then obviously, you know, and that's just helping you instantly while you're mixing. And then also um, that gives us more information for the treatment strategy to minimize those problems. So maybe uh, if there's people that are listening to this at home uh, or in their studios, they can also follow along with what we're doing and maybe do that to their own room by right. uh, downloading the pink noise from realtraps.com and, uh, moving their stuff around, so right. it can be kind of like a let's all change our rooms. Right. Yeah. Ex- at absolutely. the same time. Absolutely. So. And and I'll I'll send you some links. Um, you know, maybe we can. You know, you can put up. Um, there's there there's a page on our site that has that filtered pink noise tone that describes the listening test. I'll send you a link to that page. 
And then, okay. uh, and then we also have another page. Um, just it, it just explains our room setup strategy, and we talked a lot about that already in this conversation. But um, that gives people a reference, and you know, it has like a diagram of the thirty-eight percent thing, and you know how to set the speakers up from there, and how to figure out where your reflection points are. So I'll send you a link to those two pages, and we can uh, provide that for people as well. Yeah, and I'll sh- I'll share that on the Working Class Audio site for people. So perfect. Well, this is this has been great. Okay, I I have uh, my head is full now, so I have to go and and do <laughs> my homework, and uh, I will report back to you. Sweet. And we will discuss in the next working class audio uh, episode what uh, where we're at, what I've come up with, and our conversation will continue. Perfect. I look forward to that. I'm going to get back to some mixing here on my end. I've got a project I'm working on, so. I got a few more hours before I get tired, so I'll see what I can do with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go get some work done, and I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Take care. All right. See ya. Later. Okay, so there you have it. James Lindenschmidt from Real Traps with his plans of what we're going to do and his recommendations, and we're just going to take it step by step. That's the first step, and in the next episode, we'll take the next step and you know follow James's directions of what we should do to improve the room. So I hope you enjoyed that. This is going to be kind of a, a new thing for me and new thing for the podcast. I think we'll all get something out of it. So I hope, I hope you enjoy that. So that's it for the acoustics section. Now let's jump into our interview with Joey Sturgis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Awesome. Thank you. You're doing a workshop today, but there was a snowstorm. Yeah. Where are you at? Well, I'm in Michigan. I'm, you know, somewhere in the center. So it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I live out in the country. The thing that's nice, though, is when I bought this house, there was no internet. And uh, that was kind of a blessing in disguise. You know, I think, you know, if there was, if if there had been some sort of internet already here, I probably wouldn't have gone through all the trouble that I did. So I, I called up a company and I, I was like, okay, you guys are going to have to like lay down the lines and get me this crazy internet connection. And so I, I spent a ton of cash on getting a fiber line put out here in the country. And it's so peaceful out here. We can film, we can make noise, you know, not be bothered. You don't have, you know, you're pretty far off the beaten path and don't get bothered very much. So we can, I got a film studio down here and we can just kind of do whatever we need to do. But uh, uh, yeah, the snowstorm, you know, and, and other things like that create problems because all of my business partners live in different states. And so they've got to travel here if we need to be on camera together. <laughs> so one of the guys who's supposed to be coming up here, he's he's waiting for the storm to end, and he's in Atlanta. Oh, great. Yeah, so he's got a, like a 12-hour <laughs> drive. <laughs> well, um, let's just uh, touch on a, a little bit of your, your beginnings. Uh, so you're, uh, you're originally a drummer, is that right? Yeah, I've been playing drums probably since the age of like six. I was in my first band when I was, in, when I was nine years old. I could barely reach the kick pedal. They used to say played with older people. I was always in, always the youngest member of any band I was in. You know, I'd be like nine years old and playing in a band of twenty-two year olds. Uh, it was always pretty interesting in that regard. And and I missed my first three days of high school because I had to travel to Nashville to record an album. So it's always involved in music that way. And never really knew exactly what I was trying to do. I was just I liked music and I liked playing in bands. And I don't know if I was necessarily trying to make a career out of it or anything, but. I was just going with the flow and and sooner or later I found myself trying to figure out how to record myself because my band wanted to put a demo out 
on MySpace, you know, and this is fast forward to 19 years of age. So my friend had a makeshift uh, situation in his garage. He kind of went into his garage, built some walls and made like a makeshift studio. He works early mornings and I was a night owl. So he'd always be asleep when I was kind of awake. And so I was like, hey, man, like, do you mind if I get a key and just kind of come in there and mess around with stuff when you're not using it? And he's like, sure. Little time passes by and I figured enough things out to make my own demo. And we put it online. This is during the MySpace days. Uh, kind of went a little bit viral, at least in, in our scene. And everyone was like, where did you guys record? And, and of course, the answer was, oh, we did it ourselves in this garage. And sooner or later, we had the, uh, the requests rolling in to, to work with us. And so I asked my friend and worked out a deal. And that's how I got started. Um, I was recording bands in his garage. Interesting. Interesting. And that's the, uh, that would be the start of what would be, if I have the name correct, the foundation, right? Yeah. So we, we ended up giving it a name because in, in those days, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, but what we were really doing is we were branding ourselves and we were creating a marketing strategy, but we had no clue that we were doing that though. You know, I just thought, oh, the studio needs a cool name and it needs a cool logo. And, it, you know, so people click on it and, and check us out and become interested. And, and of course, what, what ended up happening is that we didn't have to find clients. Clients found us and we got our name positioned into the top eight of anyone that we worked with. And that was like part of the things like you come to our studio, we're going to be in your top eight. Um, you know, and through through a couple of things like this, that ended up creating our brand and our marketing strategy that allowed us to expand. And so for every band that we record, it would create five more clients. And for all five of those clients, I would create five more each. And it just became this big web effect that uh, took storm in the MySpace days. Hmm. Interesting. How old were you at that point? I was in my early 20s, probably like 23 or something. I'm 31 mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've moved several times. But, uh, you know, that that's how we got started. I should say this too, is I had the help of a manager who found me early on after I'd recorded a couple of bands for his label. He started to take notice of my my ability. That's when he contacted me and said, you know, hey, are you interested in having a manager? And at first I was extremely reluctant to the whole thing because first of all, this guy owned a record label. So I kind of had a bad taste in my mouth just in terms of what I've heard in the media and what I've heard from various musicians over the years is that like, you know, record labels are scary and and uh, the people that own them are probably scary too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I decided to take a chance on it because I said, what have I got to lose? I mean, if this doesn't work out, I just say it's not working out and I can keep doing my thing. Um, but in, in doing that, in trusting him, I said, here's a list of things that I want out of you or out of this situation. And I made sort of like a wish list. And within a few years, he made every single thing on the wish list happen. I mean, it was things like, oh, I want to work with a, a band from a different country. I want to work with Adam D. I want to do a, a record for Metal Blade, uh, you know, this, this, and this. And he made all of those things happen. And it was really cool. There's about a 16-year difference in, in, in our uh ages and i gotta be honest with you when i was that age i just did not have that clarity and i really uh i think that's fantastic that you did so to 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 be clear on your thinking of like your goals of what you wanted to accomplish and to have the 
you know, idea that, well, all right, I'll just take a chance and give this guy a list and accomplish these things. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't want to work for anybody. I had a job. I, I was working in a computer shop and I just hated it. And, and I just realized that like, you know, I, one day, one of the things we did, we did these service calls, it's, you know, go to a business like a treasury office or something, set up all their printers, right? Do that on site. So I would go to the place I'd be sitting there staring at the clock doing the work and and just thinking of, you know, at the end at the end of the day you give you give them the invoice and then they they mail in a check or whatever. And I'm just thinking this invoice I'm about to hand them says that we're going to charge them for 2 hours of work, which is $70 an hour. So that's $140 and I'm only getting 12 of that. I'm only getting $6 an hour here. And it took a long time for that to click and I don't know why. I think maybe just cuz I loved working with computers, but the day that that clicked was the day I stopped going into work. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that coincidentally was around the same time that I was recording more and more bands on the weekends. I think the boss, I think my boss got the hint, you know, he's like, okay, he must have found something better because he hasn't been coming into work. He's calling in sick all the time and all this. And and that's when I really, I just started doing the, the recording thing full time, took on more and more bands because I had more time during the week. And it was making pretty decent money. You know, I had people from that whole MySpace experience, I had people wanting to pay for this and willing to. And and my friend was making money off of me and I was making money off the bands and it, it was a beautiful thing. And um, and I had Craig too, uh, my manager, and, you know, he was making money off of me. So it was he was invested as well to make sure I had clients. And one day, basically what happened was the landlord or my friend, you know, he was like, we want to use this for a different purpose. And so we'll be fair and we just won't charge you rent. And I'll be like, oh, that's not going to work. I have a band that I booked six months ago that's supposed to be here and they're, they've got a tour schedule. Uh, I can't just cancel it. I, I've already spent the money and can't give the money back. And that's when, uh, that's when I bought a house and we, we put a studio in the house that's when it got really serious. I was doing a record every month, constantly working, not taking off weekends, not taking off holidays, just working straight. And and this is the house in the middle of if if you're looking at Michigan, which is this is mid. actually in Indiana. So oh, I, this is in Indiana. Okay. Yeah, I started in Indiana. The garage was in Indiana, and, so, and the first house I bought was in Indiana. And I lived there for like 27 years. I moved into Michigan uh, like four years ago. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So a lot of the records I did, I mean, were literally recorded in my dining room at my house. If, if I may ask, I, I, I want to just kind of probe a little bit into your your upbringing. Uh, what did your parents do? Uh, I'll give you one guess. Uh, computers. Nope, music. Music, okay, yep. okay. Dad, my dad's been um, teaching guitar and building guitars and and doing that kind of stuff for his whole life, really. And mm -hmm. my mom sings and plays keyboards. You know, as day jobs, they don't have the music thing going on, but they've always done the Weekend Warrior thing. You know, they were in a pretty serious band for a while that went to Nashville and did the whole thing, did the whole, you know, make a record and shop it around, but uh, nothing came out of that. They're incredibly talented people, and they've always just sort of let me do what I want. I was, I started out, kind of going off the path of music. I, I started out with computers. I was I learned how to program when I was in high school. I wrote my first video game when I was 18. And I wrote several programs throughout the years and I worked at the computer shop, etc. I think that is actually what helped mold me into the type of producer I am because I work very heavily in the box. Um, uh -huh. I don't use a lot of outboard gear. 
I do a lot of editing. I do a lot of very tricky layering that requires a, you know, a very hands-on uh, understanding of of the audio waveforms and how they fit together. And uh, so, I'm very grateful for the computer background that I have because that's that's pretty much how I approach a lot of things, um, even in life. So, I mean, at 31, I mean, you just you seem to. Uh... I don't know. It seems like you've grown up rather fast, but at, at your own pace. And I see, you know, I'm going to make an assumption and credit your parents with, I, I could tell you that my parents never would have let me uh, miss the first day of high school or the first week, or, or I, I forget the, the amount of time you missed to go make a record. And I'm a parent now. And so hearing this, I'm like, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> it seems like you've, you've turned into a rather industrious person. And that upbringing, I think, I think it's key. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I even realized it at the time. You know, I don't, I don't think you do when you're that age. I think you just, you know what you want. Like, oh, I want to do this. I, I don't, screw high school. Like, I want to go make a record. That's way cooler, <laughs> you know. But little did I know that that they actually had the upper hand. They knew what they were doing, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's, you know you're an excellent parent when your kids think that they're making all the decisions and you're letting them do what they want, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is fascinating that, uh, of where you're at at this point because um, I'm curious about the creation of Joey Sturgis Tones. And how, obviously you have a computer background, so you, you know, knew enough to... Uh, combine the computer with the audio, and now you have this line of plugins. So can you tell me more about that? Sure. The thing that's funny about this is it's another one of those things that I never set out to do. I never said, I'm going to create a plugin company and just do you know this epic stuff that we've done. And that's the same thing that happened with me becoming a producer. I never sat down and said, I'm going to be a music producer. I just kind of went you know, where where things were leading me and where I was going with that. And one of my friends, he was always bothering me about this. He was just like, dude, you need to make plugins. You got to make some plugins. I'm like, ah, it's too too hard. It's going to take too long. I'm going to have to read like these 300 page books and, you know, learn all this stuff about programming. And and I had a couple of days off, decided I was going to check it out um, just to just to feed the curiosity a little bit. And it turned out that there was, I found a couple things where I could like prototype some basic ideas and this is just a day off so i'm just bored you know nothing to do messing around on a computer and i start prototyping this compressor just just for fun it actually started to turn into something kind of cool and i i spent a little bit more time on that and just found that uh it was a lot easier as opposed to what i thought it would be over over about six weeks or so i i worked on this prototype of this compressor and I got it to a point where I was like, this is actually pretty cool. And I, I'm using it on tracks. I'm testing it on songs I'm working on. So I, I build it and I export it and I start using it. And I decide, you know what? I am going to see if anyone is interested in this. And I built this, a little store and put it up there and just said, pre-order this. I got a bunch of pre-orders and I was shocked. I was like, wow, I can't believe that anyone cares about me making plugins. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, granted, I had a little bit of a following from the producer thing, and I was one of those lucky producers who was kind of in the in the spotlight, and, and I don't really even know how that happened. I just, you know, when YouTube first came out, I was like, oh, I want to put v videos on YouTube, and, and 
you know, so we would record our days in the studio and they would be really funny. People would watch them. And, and so people got to know who I was and know that I was always involved in the, in the records and the fans got involved with that too. And, and so that's kind of how that, that came together. And so I had built this audience that I really didn't even understand that I could tap into. You know, I just looked at it as like, oh, I just want to be kind of popular. I mean, everyone wants to be kind of popular. Um, so I try to get Twitter followers, you know, and just, but now like I approach it from a completely different point of view. Now, nowadays it's, it's all business. It's like, you know, how many people can I reach with my ads? How many people can see what we're doing and how do we get more users and all this stuff? But like back then I had no clue what I was doing. I was just trying to get followers for the point of getting followers. I, I, I know this sounds creepy, but in my short time of researching, uh, a, your background and what I know about you, uh, I just kind of looked at it and was like, wow, this guy is like the new breed of the new generation, just the, of, of recording engineers. He, uh, you're, you're diversified in your talents, you're business savvy, computer savvy. And I really, I don't know, man, I really admire that. I think that's, I think you sound very sharp with what you're doing. And I think a lot of people could learn a lot from you. Um, what can you tell me about when I say diversification, that's, it's kind of a topic we talk a little bit about on the show. What can you tell me? Like, what does that mean to you? I mean, are you, do you feel like you're, that's a conscious decision, what you're doing, you're diversifying, you're bringing in different income streams. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was a, there was a thought and I, I don't know if I can pin it perfectly, but I'll try and I'll try and describe it. And for me, it was a comparison of what I do as a producer to what a waiter does in a restaurant. Essentially, the band is is eating at my table, and I'm going up to the table and I'm asking, you know, what kind of food do they want? And I'm taking their order. They're tipping me. This is kind of how this producer thing works. If you really take a step back and, and kind of look at it from a macro scale, you're just a, you're a musical waiter. Um, you're trying to interpret what they want. You're trying to help them find the right food that they want to eat. You're trying to, uh, you know, you're giving them advice on what kind of wines to drink because you know more about it than they do. Yet at the end of the day, the customer walks out of the door with, you know, they're still like the, uh, uh, well, the band, you know, the band is goes on to do all these other things. They go on to do the, you know, they do these awesome tours and they do these music videos and all this stuff. And and you're still just a producer, so it's it's a very selfless thing, uh, and it's limited by time. So you can only, I mean, it, let's say you become the most superhero producer in the world. You're only going to be able to record so much audio in one hour because that hour is never going to get bigger or longer. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So when I got to the point where I started to max out my own capacity, you know, I, I had a big team of like four or five people working under me and, and four or five rooms going at the same time in two different locations and multiple bands being produced at the same time and getting like tons of royalty checks and label checks coming in all at the same time. Like, you know, that sounds like a great life, but I was looking at this, like, this is all it's going to be. It's not going to get any better than this because I'm completely maxed out. I've got a huge team. We still have to turn down bands. And that's when I realized being a producer is like being a waiter. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. 
because you know I do teach people. I'm like, you can make a great living out of this, and I'll help you. I'll tell you how to do it. Uh, that's part of that's part of my diversification is that I'm, I have an audio education company, and we have a program called Nail the Mix, nailthemix.com. Uh, you can learn to be a better mixer. You can make five, six figures with that information um, if you're motivated. For me, though, you know, I look up to people like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, uh, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin O'Leary. I am a huge fan of that Shark Tank show. Yeah, me too. I just watched that with great enthusiasm. So to hear you say this, yeah, that that's interesting. So I, I apply it to my life. I'm saying, how how can I do that with my set of skills? And I realized I have the gift of helping people make great music. I do it in a lot of different ways. I do it as a producer. I do it as an engineer. I do it as a plugin company that makes plugins that people can use to create great music. I do it as an audio educator. I do it as a speaker on a podcast or as a guest on a, a on a show or something like that. Once I realized that was my mission and that the the producer life alone wasn't enough for me, it and I was hungry for more. Uh, that's when everything clicked. That's when the mission came into my mind. That's when I knew what I was going to do with the plugin company, how I was going to spin my life around and and basically make a better living and a better life for myself. And I do it through helping people make great music. You said a number of things that I want to address. Uh, number one, you have a team of people working underneath you. Yes. Uh, the, the, I just got to ask you, man, how does that occur? And how do you maintain your hand in making sure that the quality is of a level that you expect? Well, the great thing about being a producer and then going into business is that you have, you possess all of the skill set it, it requires to be a great businessman. You're going to be judging. I mean, that's, that's what a producer does. A producer judges content, makes it better. It figures out what to do to make it better. You're judging everything. I'm, I'm looking at an ad. This ad could be better. What could be better about it? Bigger text, better words, better copy. Move this around and move this over here. This isn't the right caller. You know, that kind of stuff was just happening. It was just pouring out of me. And it come. I believe that it really does come from my producing background. And, and that's why I can go into marketing and I can split test two subject lines in an email. And I can think, you know, well, these are the two best that I can think of. But now let's see what everyone else thinks is better and then we we measure the clicks and so like it's a <laughs> it's a great huge transition from like thinking about working on songs and then just applying the same concept to the business world to marketing and advertising and i kind of just lost my train of thought in terms of what your original question was i had a good point well, for it well well i just wanted to ask how you maintain the quality within with having all those people underneath you and second how did you get to a point where you had those people underneath you so the trick to maintaining the quality, I think, is just keeping your standards high. Because, sure, I mean, you can create a graphic. It looks pretty good. You could use it. But I'm the first person to be like, no, it could be a little better. And even after that, you know, I might still not, still might want it to be better. So I, I keep my standards high. It's really just that simple. Um, okay. And in terms of the people... Once you work with a lot of musicians, and I've worked with, I'm pretty sure, 500 bands. I lost count after around 500. Mm -hmm. You work with a lot of people. You meet a lot of different personality types, people who, you know, never had moms to teach them how to do dishes. And then they, they room with you for three weeks and they 
leave their dishes in the sink all the time. And you, you, you're like, well, how are we going to get through this? You always leave your dishes around. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> you know, all these kind of things happen and you get good at dealing with people. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be very good at networking and just kind of keeping my eyes open and noticing talent. That's how I've found all of my, you know, the engineers who have worked for me and my protégés. I've just had an eye open and an ear open through mutual friends and friends and family. I would find people, diamonds in the rough, so to speak. And I would just be like, man, that, that kid has a good talent. And he doesn't even know it. I'm going to take him in under my wing. He's going to be a lot of value to me, but I'm going to be a lot of value to him. And, you know, over the years, you just build a pretty collective circle of, of that kind of that kind of community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> ever, you know, I, I find the diamonds in the rough. And, and, and one of the key moments of building my cl- plug-in company was finding a good programmer that would help me. Because I don't sit around and program all the plugins myself. I mean, I wouldn't be able to run the company if I had to do all that. Um, I started off by programming the first plugin, but then I, you know, I went and networked and I found more programmers and got people to help me realize some of my ideas in a, in a much quicker fashion than if I had done it myself. So I think it's just knowing that, you know, the, the most important part of working with people is to realize that you have to bring value to someone before they can bring you value. And the, if the other person is thinking the same thing, then you have this great reciprocation. Would you attribute your relationship with your manager to be key in the development of all these, you know, the plug-in company and all these businesses? I think he was my icebreaker. I mean, because he's wor- now he's worth like $20 million. He's sold his record label for tons of money. So he, he obviously is a smart person. He knows what he's doing with business. But he started out like, you know, he was a surfer. And he just liked music and he just ran his label because he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of passion, you know, his sort of advisory to me over the years, um, I think that kind of soaked into my skin. You know, we, we didn't, uh, we got to a point where we didn't see eye to eye and, and we mutually agreed to, to, to separate because I was doing more, more and more things that did not involve him and didn't involve music per se. You know, it was all in the music world, like the plug-in companies in the music world, et cetera. So he's he's not your manager now then? Yeah, I have no manager now. Um, you know, I, I learned how to make invoices. I learned how to use a spreadsheet. I learned how to use a calendar. So I learned how to uh, form, like how to talk to people formally over email, how to conduct business calls. Like these are all the things that he brought to the table as a manager, you know, aside from his ability to, you know, know what records were being made before anyone else did because he's, uh-huh. you know, going to lunch meetings and all this. But aside from that stuff, I, I learned all of the business side and it started to just kind of get in the way. You know, it was like, I don't, not necessarily, I don't want to say that I didn't need him because, you know, he's a, he's a powerful person. He knows what he's doing. It was more that I just wanted to go a little bit of a different direction with my life. I didn't want to constantly be in the studio. I wanted to be able to develop products and and explore ideas and and really itch that scratch that that I had on my back. Mm-hmm. So you do a number of things now, and you you do them as a you know without a manager, and you have you have, you have business partners as I heard you mention earlier. Yeah. Um. So you've got you're producing, you're engineering, you got the plug-in company, you got the education company. Um. You do have a podcast as well, isn't that right? Yep. Because I, I noticed that, and that's actually a, a, a like a subscription-based podcast. Yeah. Um. Well, rather, I should say it was. Uh. I mean, it still is, but it, I'll try to explain what's happening. So we we started off 
with the idea that, you know, we're having these conversations on the phone every week, me and, and me and some friends. And I was like, man, these, these conversations are really interesting. Like we should start recording them. I bet people would want to listen to this. And that's my, you know, entrepreneurial spirit kind of coming out there. And uh, I didn't know what we were going to use it for. I was just like, let's just at least figure out how to record it and start recording. Uh, so we did that. Then we're like, okay, let's make a podcast, but we want to make money off of our podcast. And we realized that in order to get money out of a podcast, you have to either charge money for it or have advertising. So we kind of just assumed that advertising would be a long road. You know, you'd have to get hundreds of thousands of listeners before anyone cared about spending money on, on your show. And so we just kind of came up with this, well, what can we add to this? Like maybe we can spend time, one-on-one -on -one time with them, help them critique their mixes, help them become better at mixing and all this. So we did this, right, for about a year. And then we realized there's all these other opportunities that we could do if we combined all of our skills and talents together. So long story short, I'll just say, we started out as a podcast. Now we're going to combine everything together. We're going to combine the podcast, the audio education company, and add on a few extra services, um, mainly in the e-learning uh, category, and create a whole package. And uh, this is going to be called the Unstoppable Recording Machine. And the whole idea is that you, you come here, you come to the site, you become a member, and we help you become an Unstoppable Recording Machine. So it's, it's all about getting people from, you know, point A to point B, whether it be that you're a newbie or maybe you're advanced and you just want to know how to take your career to the next level. You're only making, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year and you want to make $80,000 a year. How do you do it? Uh, we're going to tell you that. We're going to tell you, we're going to give you the resources you need to do it. We're going to give you the, uh, the support that you need to do it. We're going to have a community um, of people that just want to help you succeed and, and as well as your peers. And uh, the whole thing is really cool. It's like a big audio social network designed around learning more things about audio and learning more things about music. And uh, that that's what we're building now. And it's supposed to launch March 7th, uh, but I think we're going to need a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that. That's right around the corner. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. Joey Sturgis on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I just want to take a minute to take a sponsor break here with Audio-Technica and talk to you a little bit about the microphone that I use here on the show. That would be the Audio-Technica BP40. That's one of their newest large diaphragm dynamic broadcast microphones. It's got a very, very nice all-metal construction. It's very heavy, feels very solid, and uh, it's got a multi-stage windscreen uh, built in, which provides really great internal pop filtering, and it's got switchable high-pass filter at 100 hertz. It's hypercardioid in its polar pattern, which is great for keeping Moto the Bulldog snoring from dominating the conversation, in this case, for the podcast. And it's got a humbucking coil, which prevents electromagnetic interference, which is really great. On my old standard, that wasn't the case. There was always a little bit of buzz that always managed to make its way in on the microphone, and we don't have that problem anymore. I think it's got a very rich and natural condenser-like sound, at least on my voice it does. And I think that really comes through on the podcast, even on hearing it on a small speaker like a cell phone. So so uh, yeah, that's the BP40. The MSRP on that is 489 Typically, you can get it for about 349 out there in the world. So you might want to do a little shopping around and see what you can find. So if, you, uh, if you're interested in doing podcasting, this is a great mic. Uh, if you're doing any kind of uh, voiceover work at home and you are in a noisy environment or at least a uh, acoustically 
not so well prepared environment, this might be a great mic for you instead of a uh, condenser mic. So uh, yeah, that's the Audio Technica BP40. And uh, let's get back to our interview here with Mr. Uh, Joey Sturgis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What would be your advice to the listeners? And the listeners comprise the absolute pros all the way down to the very beginner. Let's say career advice for the average recording individual, whether they're in location sound or recording jazz bands or whatever. What would you tell people to, to uh, lift them up and encourage them to uh, get to work? Sure. Um, well, I, I say, you know, be prepared for your life um, because ultimately you're the designer of your life. A lot of people, I think they just kind of show up but you need to come with a plan. You need to come with a strategy. Where are you trying to go? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? So if you want to be great at audio, but you're only making $12,000 a year from it, you're like, ah, I'd like to make $80,000 a year. Be realistic with yourself. What do you need to do in order to accomplish that? Do you need to raise your price? If you need to raise your price because you're already recording too many bands that fit into your lifestyle and you have no extra time, then your quality needs to increase, right? Your product needs to get better. You always wanna focus on your product. And when I say product, I mean, it is what you do. It's your service. It's it's how good of a mixing engineer are you? That's your product. How good of a communicator are you? Maybe you're a producer and you're a good communicator. That's your product. Keep the standards high. Keep the quality high. Raise the price because people will be willing to pay for it if it really is that good. Don't let fear drive you unless it's in a forward direction. Any kind of fear that drives you backwards, is is the that is our own worst enemy, right? For everyone, even for an artist. Uh, he's afraid to say this in a song. He's afraid to make a song that sounds like this. He's afraid to use a piano in this part. That holds everyone back. If you're afraid to, maybe you're afraid to file your own taxes and maybe you're afraid to start your own LLC, don't be afraid, just do it. Just, you know, (laughs) and I think the other most important underlining thing of all this though, is to have fun because the joy of this is what creates wonderful, wonderful art. And if you don't have a joy in it, if you're not happy doing it, you should probably be doing something else. Do you feel that the, in diversifying all of what you do with, do you think that that brings in other, like the plug-in company? Do you think that that has a halo effect around uh, bringing other bands to you just because it's one more thing somebody's talking about you in, in regards to the conversation of music and recording? Um, well, you know, when I started, I kind of thought that. My mind has changed on that now. However, I, I kind of look at it from a completely different point of view. Now I, I look at it from, I'm kind of like this, almost like this grandmaster ghost producer guy that's ending up on thousands of tracks that I don't even know about because people are using my plugins on their on their songs. I look at it as like, So there's this whole generation of people that are about to come up that are going to be creating everything on their own. You've got, there's so many ways to do it now. You can go on uh, YouTube, you can make your own, you can go out, buy a camera, go get Adobe Premiere, shoot your own music video in your backyard, put it on YouTube, and you do the whole thing yourself. You can make your own album on a laptop now, and uh, you know, the plugins are getting better. You don't need millions of dollars of gear in a huge recording studio to make a great album. So many bands have proven this, and I think it's just going to get worse, or well, better actually. Depending on how, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, depending on who you work for. Yeah. Now, don't don't get me wrong. 
wrong. I'm totally not saying that producers are going to be replaced. That's impossible because a producer brings an outside perspective to the table and it's usually educated. So you'll never be able to replace that. I do want to embrace the generation of people that want to create everything themselves. I want to help people do that. And that's when I really realized the the importance of all this and my mission in life. Uh, and I, I think actually, I think my most important contribution to it is the plugins, honestly. Um, cause I'm building tools that people can use in ways that I never even imagined to create music. You know, one of the things we always try to do is break down those barriers. I've, I've, I've met so many musicians who are like, yeah, had this great guitar riff, but I, by the time I got a good guitar tone, I forgot it. And, uh, then my computer didn't work. I tried to hit record and it crashed and then I broke my hard drive. And so like, there's this technical barrier between creativity and an artist, uh, and so I like to think that my plugins try and, and break down some of those barriers. And, and that's where I feel like I'm being a much greater contribution to, to the world than I am with my producing skills. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. I meet a lot of people who have a very closed mindset about, you know, they're the curmudgeon who always says, oh, the music sucks today, or oh, it's not like it used to be, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just like nauseating for me. And at my age, so I can, I'm curious at, at 31, what's your perspective of that older generation and how can they continue to be successful well, now? It's a good question. I kind of want to just start with by saying, you know, how many back and blacks can you make? <laughs> you can only, there's can only be one, you know, and, and the most, the big constant is change. Everything changes. Music always changes. There's a good documentary I really like um, that I think everyone should see. It's called Everything's a Remix. And the whole premise of the thing is that you got people on one end of the fence complaining about, oh, you copied my song and or you copied my melody, you copied my band, you copied my style of music. But everything's a copy. I mean, rock and roll's not even original. It's, it, it came from blues. And, and who's to say where that came from? And I'm sure you can go back and look at all this origin, you know, the origin of everything. But it all contributes to a greater thing. And people just take their inspiration, take their influences and, and create something new with it. Let's be honest. I mean, there's 12 notes, in, at least in the modern Western end of music. How much can you really do with that before you start sounding like something else? And it's the consumer's fault. Consumers have a, a power. It's called purchasing power. What do you buy? I mean, if if every if if Justin Bieber wouldn't be making the kind of songs he's making if people weren't buying stuff that influenced his his writing, right? Mm -hmm. I you know he he's, he wants to run a business out of what he's doing. He wants to make a living. Okay, would well, take a look at the landscape. What are what are people buying? Oh, people are buying a lot of Skrillex. Dubstep's huge. EDM's huge. Pop is huge. Let's combine all that stuff together. Then you get Justin Bieber's new album, Purpose. Right. One of his biggest songs right now was written by Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran, I might be saying his name wrong. I think he sold out two nights in a row, just him and an acoustic guitar in that Wembley uh, arena. Wow. Or Wembley Stadium. Oh, yeah. Ed, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. We're living in a different time where, of course, you've got people complaining about all this music, and you, you always will. But I look at it as like, if you're not, if you're always striving for back in black, or you're always striving for something from five years ago, you're not contributing. You're not contributing to the community. You're not creating anything new. You're not adding any new art or any new value in your art. And I know that's a pretty bold statement, but it's true. It's, you, you gotta, we have to keep, keep molding it. We have to keep progressing. I guess it goes back to what you started with, have an open mind. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a concept that uh, there's a woman named Carol Dweck 
who has a, a book about uh, having an open mindset. And it's something that I was turned on to just because of my young kids who are in school. I've got about a third of the way into her, into her book. I don't know. It just, I think it's very applicable to, to the recording world, just having an open mindset. And that's how you, you can stay involved because if you just continue to, as you said, you know, try to make records from 1970 something or 80 something, you're just going to find yourself behind until of course that trend turns around and everybody starts remaking those kind of records. (laughs) Yeah. Like I don't think that style of music is going to die per se. I don't think that style of music will ever die. Uh, I think a lot of people keep it alive, and and that's certainly true if you look at the Grammy nominations for this year. You've got bands like Wolf Mother, and, and I like to think those those bands keep it alive. But I don't, you know, I think that the Grammys even have the the tough task of figuring out how do we position all this style of music. You you look at the rock category, for example. The rock category has metal bands in it because they don't have enough categories. They don't have enough screening process to create one category for every style of metal. Because, I mean, there's, you know, 80 styles of metal. So what are we going to have, 80 Grammys? <laughs> right. It gets hard. You know, I think with the older generation, there's there's certainly a resistance to what's going on. But I, I think if you want to survive, you've got to embrace it. YouTube's not going away. It's the second largest search engine on the internet and now is becoming a main form of entertainment for a lot of people from any age. Mm-hmm. And I think a music distribution is going to be more popular on YouTube. You're going to see more and more people using streaming services. And there's got to be a way, I think, to capitalize on that. Because I don't, I don't think we should think about selling music in the same way that we've done it before. I always was tell, I was telling bands just three years ago, I was saying, you guys should just come in here and do a single once a month. Go back, you know, take take a new song, go and tour it for 30 days or 45 days, come back in, do another song, repeat, rinse and repeat, build an album over time. The whole model of, you know, doing 10 songs at a time, I feel like it's starting to die. And you're you're totally seeing that in hip hop and you're totally seeing that in pop as well. So it's only a matter of time before it transcends down into into other genres. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. And I would say that it gives one the opportunity to really flush out a song and do a really outstanding job on it. Plus it keeps the economics of it affordable for the band. Yeah. There's so many reasons I I, I, I agree with that concept of, of the single in this day and age, especially. And it gives you time to react. From a business point of view, you could do a single at Kabam and you're like, oh, maybe we should write songs that, that aren't like that. <laughs> I think it really does tell you stuff. I, I'm very interested in in marketing. I'm, I'm a marketing geek. I was watching a, a sales call yesterday, and they're talking about these people who their entire business, their entire industry is centered around the concept of selling things that don't exist to find out what people should make. What they do is they'll build a whole website. They'll make prototypes, mock-ups, pictures, convincing photos, put it all up on a website and see, and they'll measure how many people click the buy button. And then after the person clicks the buy button, of course, you get a message that says, oh, we're sold out or it's coming in three weeks or thanks for your interest. We'll contact you when it's ready. And they do this, they get paid to do this to find out what kind of products people should make. Because if you can't sell something, then why even make it, right? There's this whole old school philosophy where you should spend all this time making a crazy product putting all of your time and energy into it. And then you don't even figure out how to, you know, you, you, the last thing is the marketing. It's like the 
the last minute. Oh, we, we've got to make a website. We forgot about that. Oh, we should. And you're not oh, even yeah. you're not even figuring out how to get your customers. You know, relating that to music, why spend all this time on 10 songs and you're not even sure if anyone's going to like the first one? Well, I'm curious that, you know, uh, all this marketing talk and all this, you know, business talk that we're doing here in the context of music and recording, do you feel like we're at a point where there's just too much out there for, I mean, it seems like the business of audio instruction itself is very popular. There's so much free stuff on on YouTube. There's a lot of paid stuff, a lot of subscription-based things. And I'm sure you've taken that into account with your own ventures. I mean, would you agree? Do you think it's sat? Obviously, you don't think it's saturated. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think you'd be jumping in, but am I no, wrong? Do you no, you're you're not wrong. It, it's totally saturated. But I think there's a dis there's one big secret. There's one big disconnect that no one has figured out that I think we have figured out. And it, and it's one of those things, once again, had no clue what I was doing, but it turned out to be genius in the end. I've been building an audience, like I was saying earlier in the show, and I've been collecting these people for years. I mean, since for six years now, I've been collecting email addresses. When I send an email letter out to people now, it's going out to, you know, a lot, like five figures counting. I'm making like thousands of dollars on just emails. Like I'll send an email out, I get a couple thousand dollars in from that email. In, in regards to what? Just what you're, what you're promoting at the time? Yeah, whatever the product is. It, it could be a service, it could be a plug-in, you know, whatever, ebook, something like that. But let's just say, here's the disconnect. Here's the big thing, the big secret. We have a community. We have people that want to know, they want to have friends that record. They want to have other people that are interested in recording too. We've been building community for a number of years now. And we, we have this very strong, we have this very strong collection of people who that can't be taken away from us. That's, I think, the most powerful thing. So in all of our services and in all the things that we're doing, we're leaving the door open. We're saying, come in, Come in, have some drinks with us, have some conversations with us. Let's talk about where are you at? What are you doing? What are you struggling with? These conversations and this willingness to be open is the thing that I don't think anyone else has. You don't you don't see you've got uh, and I'm not gonna talk smack on a bunch of companies, but let me just say you've got a company and they say, Oh, you want to learn how this famous mixer mixes music. Come watch his videos. The whole thing stops at the play button. I mean, you hit play, you watch the video, you take what you may from that, and that's the end of the experience. We want to create a whole world beyond that where you live in it. You're not just watching videos. You're interacting with other people who watch the videos. You're interacting with the people who made the videos. You've got a question about something, and it gets answered, and there's somebody waiting for those questions and, and hoping to answer them. We're doing live events. Like I said, I got a, a broadcast studio here in my house. I can broadcast live to the internet. We're doing live uh, Q and A's, live webinars, and just tr really trying to bring the value to people and show them that we care about their success. We want to build the next generation of audio professionals, and that's really what Unstoppable Recording Machine is about. What's your financial advice? Because I, I find that 
you know, my personal story is, is, you know, I got in a little too deep and in, into a studio venture that just did not work out because I happened to open it right as the economy in the country in the U S was tanking. Yeah. And I'm not going to blame it all on that. It's, you know, I was in over my head and not really, uh, well-versed in the business. A lot of, of, a lot of people ended up in that scenario. Yeah. So I'm always curious about other people's failures that they've turned around and, and, and such. What are your comments on, on those ideas? Well, uh, I got a lot to say about that. I'll start with the fact that I think a lot of people in the music industry want to want to live in LA and they want to be in LA. That's a great idea, you know. And and I often, you know, me being over here in the Midwest, I'm like, oh, I'm going to move to LA one of these years, and I probably will. But I'm in a much better position to do that. And I think anyone that's who is thinking about getting started or has just started should stay so far away from LA that it's not even funny because it's way too expensive. It's not cost effective and it's so crowded and saturated and competitive that it's going to destroy your career before it even starts. One of the first things that happened to me early on in my career was I had a vision for low overhead and it came from something that I believe I extracted from a book that said, don't live beyond your means, live below your means. And this is a strategy that almost all rich people use. The billionaires that are still trying to save 50% off on the cereal that they buy for their kids because they realize that that's the smartest way to treat their money. And I think see so many people abusing their money. If you're making a certain amount of money in, in a month, but you're spending all of that money to live, you're not saving anything for yourself. You're not creating a future. So don't abuse your money. Keep low overhead. My first situation was $500 a month. That was my overhead. I could make $500. At that point in time, I think it took me a few days to make my rent. Don't get into these situations where you're stuck with this lease and you've got thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And I just took on debt. I didn't take on any debt until last year, if that tells you anything. Yeah. So I've, I've been debt-free since until I was like 29 or 28 or something like that. I think that's super important. And I think you have a lot of people that are interested in gear. Yep. And I don't think you need it. I don't think you need that much gear. Depends on what kind of producer you want to be, what kind of engineer you want to be, and, and how your work sounds. But I really think you can get by with a good set of plugins. I mean, I did. With what I had, I wouldn't have been able to make a Foo Fighters record. If that's the kind of record you want to make, then yeah, you got to spend some money on some gear. <laughs> or but, space. Uh, yeah, and some space uh, for sure. You want to be able to record a whole band live at once. And I was lucky, you know, work, worked with a lot of bands that couldn't even play together if it was all at once. It was better to have the click track. I worked with a lot of bands that wanted to sound new and modern and polished and clean. And the plugins helped me do that. And so, yeah, don't abuse your money. Keep your overhead low and go into an area that's cost effective. I live in Michigan. I got six acres of land here. My mortgage is, is only like 1500 a month. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, you know, this is just the land to be. <laughs> this is where you want to be. If you're out in L.A., 1500 a month, you'll be lucky if your bathroom is not in your bedroom. So the low overhead and all that, I completely agree. What about developing more business as studios, engineers, freelancers? What are some ideas you have about that that, people often overlook. 
I think one big thing that's being overlooked right now is there's a huge client base on YouTube. You've got a lot of do-it-yourselfers who need editing work and they need mixing help. I know it's not by the thousands. It's probably in the hundreds, but I think it's going to get in the thousands if it's if it's not happening now. You're going to have a lot of people that want to be their own YouTube star. They want to create their own music. Forming alliances with those kind of people and getting, you know, long-term based clients would be really smart of you because that stuff's not going away. It's only going to get, you know, crazier. So keep your mind open there in terms of editing and mixing because I think a lot of those guys need that. I would also say there's this whole concept as well where if you get some help, I see a lot of people trying to do it themselves. They do everything themselves. But if you can leverage, if you get some help and leverage that money, for example, let's say let's say that you can only do one album every month and it's because it takes you a whole week to edit the vocals. What if you could buy back all those weeks so you could get 12 weeks out of the year? That would allow you to create three more albums and it would only cost you X amount of dollars if you were hiring someone to do those vocal edits. So as you're finishing up a project, you send your that project off to get edited, you start a new one immediately and you wait for it to come back and now you're multitasking, you've got two things going on at the same time. You're leveraging your time, you're creating more income from that and spending less. And of course you got to do the math on that. You got to make sure it's not costing you the same amount of money it would cost you time-wise. Once you lay that all out and you figure it out, you're like, "Oh, I can pay $800 and get 2 weeks out of it or I could work for two weeks and I'll, you know, you, you got to do the math. It's got to make sense. And, and I kind of, pardon me, I've lost sight of uh, what people charge now because I can just charge what I want. You get where I'm going with this. Right. Yeah, I do. I think my immediate question is, is how do the bands that you work with react to, oh, you mean you're not going to do everything, Joey? You're, you have these other people? Hmm. Sure. Are um, they cool with that? It's pretty easy because I put it to them like this. I say, there's a couple things. First of all, I'll be happy to do whatever you want me to do. However, that might not be the best investment for you. You might be thinking, oh yeah, of course we want you to edit your vocals. But you realize that that's going to push me back creatively because I'm doing a a mind-numbing task that takes away all of my excitement about your music, takes away all of my creativity towards your project, And now at the end of the day, I don't want to hear another second of your music because I had to listen to you singing this vocal line 30 times for 30 hours or whatever that is. I always put it in that perspective, say, pay me how you want, but I think you're going to want me to be focusing on the creative side of your songs and having other people do the, the numbing tasks that would take away from that creativity. The other thing I would say is that it's a timing thing. And I often use this as leverage too with the managers to say like, look, you've got a timeline, right? You need this to be done by this time. If I don't get someone to help me do this, it's going to take me three times as long. So your choice, do you want to wait three times as long or do you want it now? (laughs) Are you getting pushback from managers sometimes to say, what what do you mean you're hiring somebody else? Well, what it really comes back down to is the band says that to the manager and then the manager has to do his job and fight the good fight for the band. Mm -hmm. You know where it's coming from. And I don't blame them. If I was in a band, I'd do the same thing. But I think as soon as I explain that to them, they it makes so much sense to them. It's like, oh, okay. So instead of spending eight hours editing drums, you're going to spend eight hours making the songs cooler 
oh, that makes so much more sense. That's so much better. Yeah, do that. It's cool. Does it cost them extra or are you, or is um, that just part of your cost? No, I put it into my, based on how much money I tell them I want, mm. I'm including the ability to pay others. So they're not mm. having to pay for extra for that. I see. It, it's coming out of my pocket. Are you doing all in budgets for people? Yes. That makes more sense to you. That's how we started. And Craig sort of made the argument that that's what people want. He's like, look, I'm on this side of the industry. I know what people are complaining about, what they talk about. And one of the main things that always gets brought up is like, you've got the producer fee, but then you've got the hotels, then you got the travel, then you got the per diems, then you got the food, you got this, 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 this. I would be like, okay, well, we're all in. The band just has to feed themselves. That's it. They got a place to stay. They got a kitchen they can use. They can cook here. We've got entertainment. We've got Xbox. We've got huge movie screen, surround sound. Like all those things built in actually mattered a lot. I see. So essentially, you are running a residential studio in the middle of Michigan. Yeah. People come to you, and the only thing they got to do is get there, pay the fee. They got, as you say, a place to stay, entertainment. I think my first question about that is, is like, I would wonder like, oh, okay, so I'm holed up in this house for, I don't know, three weeks with this band. And what do you do if one of the band members is batshit crazy? Uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to where I haven't had to deal with that a lot. I've dealt with it a little bit, but it's just one of those things. It's it's the necessary evil of the whole thing. You can have the band off-site. You can put them in a hotel, but guess what happens? They don't show up half the time. Or that gives them the ability to leave and not sort of be stuck in the creativity, which is what the managers want. The managers actually love the fact that this isn't out in the middle of nowhere because the band's got nowhere to go. Mm. And that keeps them productive. That keeps them creative. That makes sure the album is good. That's always been something in my favor. I've had the unique situation where I've had bands... You know, the bands, they leave and they go on tour with each other and then they talk to each other. And so they, they kind of share their thoughts behind the scenes on, on you know, what they think about what you're doing. And I heard through the grapevine, like one of the bands was like, yeah, you know, Joey's great and everything, but he lives in this shitty town and like, it sucks. And you're probably going to be bored out of your mind if you go record there. So that was also part of the whole thing of me moving to Michigan. I still live in the middle of nowhere, but I'm not in Indiana where there's nothing. Like Indiana's like, there's just nothing anywhere. At least here, I'm 30 minutes away from a college town. And if a band really, really is bored and they want to have a night out on the town, they can go down to Ann Arbor and do whatever they want. And it's cool. And that's still far enough away to feel secluded, but it's not too far that they can that they can't reach it. So this is actually a much better situation than what I had in Indiana. Interesting. Well, very cool, man. This has been uh, quite fascinating to uh, get a glimpse into your world. I've come from not knowing anything about you, and now I feel like I I'm, have a good grasp on on your world. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Thank you. Joey Sturgis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Wow, what what a fascinating guy. I mean, quite young and yet so much experience and a lot of uh, a lot of different things going on with Joey. Look forward to uh, seeing what happens with him in the future and how he continues to uh, develop and grow. 
Very interesting. Well, we are out of time, and I want to, of course, thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale there for that music. Thanks, Cliff. I want to thank Chuck Smith, our voiceover guy at the beginning. I want to thank Cole Williams. Cole, thanks for editing the show and doing what you do. Appreciate your help. And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And, of course, I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate your time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 